Welcome to the 16th podcast in our First Peter sermon series, Through the Fire. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called, Under the Hand of God. This is going to be the last Sunday that we're in 1 Peter, so we're going to get ready to say goodbye to a good old friend. Uh, the last 15, 16 weeks, we've been charting our course through 1 Peter. That brings us to this morning. So if, if you're joining late, all of it's online. You can find those messages on our YouTube channel. Uh, and I'd love to engage with any anybody, whether you've only watched a one session, or you've only been here once, or you've been here the whole time. Anyone who has questions about the, this book, uh, things that we've taught on, or maybe something we've missed uh, that we didn't really uh, approach or uh, uh, address directly, if there's something that uh, we've missed somehow, somewhere, then let me know, and I'd love to get back and cover that. Where we have been at at least the last four weeks uh, I said that we're kind of bringing things to a head because Peter brings things to a head here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So we looked at, uh, well, looking to Christ, different places in the book. Peter specifically addresses who Jesus is, what his ministry was like, uh, forming for us the foundation of belief in who Christ is. Without that starting point, what do we have? We have uh, an, a religion that is foundationless. So different times, Peter keeps pointing us back, directing us back to the life and ministry of Christ. We looked at the suffering and ceasing from sinning. We kind of go back into that a little bit this morning. Uh, and it says today twice, and that's not right. Uh, last week was suffering and joyful service in the body of Christ. We looked at what Peter was talking about that uh, is for all of us, the church gathered together and Today is what's next. Where does Peter leave us and how does he leave us? Because he doesn't leave us hanging. So important to remember that this is an entire letter written for the church. In the early church, the whole thing would have been read at one time. Just like when you get a letter, you don't read you know, one part in the middle and then throw it away, right? You read the whole letter. And that's what Peter's churches would have done. So what we lose in our approach is the rest of the context. So let me tell you, where Peter started, he ends. And the value of that is very significant for us today, especially as we consider the current issues and even trials, uh, the, the things that are confounding for the church even right now. It, it's almost like Peter reaches down through the centuries and grabs us by the shirt and says, listen to me, this is significant. How does he do that? Well, we're about to read it, but let me just give you one hint. Beginning of chapter five, he says, so I exhort. In other words, you know, that's, that's a good, clean Bible word for I plead, 
I beg, listen to me. This is the big therefore exclamation point at the end of the letter. After considering all that I've written to you about things that are critical in times of trial and testing, I beg you, listen to this. That's the way he's ending. And so I do the same with you, whether online or here in person. I plead with you, listen to what he is saying. And one more time, I, I promise, wait, I keep bashing this, and so I'm going to bash it one more time. All of this that he's told us to do, all of these imperatives, even here at the end, I beg you, do this. It's not do this and you'll live. It's do this because you live. Because Jesus lives in you. Because you have a living relationship with the living Savior in response to what he's doing inside of you, in your heart. Do these things, I beg you, he's saying. So, in the middle of this passage, I'm giving you one more hint. He's begging us, and then he says that there is something bigger going on. In verse 6, he mentions this, under the mighty hand of God. I mentioned that, so that's also going to be in your mind. That's the, basically the title of the sermon as we close this series, and he is emphasizing something. God's in control of all of this, and his hand is mighty and powerful. Don't you forget, especially in the midst of trial and suffering and difficulties where it seems like it's all up for grabs, right? If this year, if we need any prime example, this year is it, right? It seems so random and so awful for so many people. Don't forget God is sovereign. He is the powerful one. And we are under his sovereignty, his mighty hand, which means a lot. It's a sermon in and of itself. We've addressed it. We've looked at it in the different ways that Peter approaches it. I just want you to be clued in that he is begging us, pleading with us to remember who God is, that we are under his hand in all things and everything, okay? And with that in mind, we're going to look at his final begging, his final plea to us. If we are to continue on, this whole theme was through the fire, right? If we are going to go through this fire, the testing and the trials moving forward, honoring Jesus, considering who he is, we are under his mighty hand, that we are part of his plan and purpose, even though we can't see it and we're frustrated by it, he's still in charge of it. So if we're going to move forward, he is begging us to consider three things. Our next chapter has to involve number one, humility. Be humble, he's saying in verses one through seven. If there's any time in recent history that we've got to remember humility. It is, brothers and sisters, it is right now. We have been humbled, and we are continually being more and more humbled. I remember last year thinking about 2020 vision and praying about and talking with elders and even presenting to you different things of, 
of, of where it is that we think God is leading us. And I have been very humbled in the past few months to realize that most of those things on that list were not part of this year at all. And that, folks, is humbling. I did not, I mean, who? Who saw? Who saw this happening? The, the, re, the result of that is humble. I am under his mighty hand, and I am not working around that, and I had better be perceiving and, and sensitive and responsive and obedient to his plan, because his plan is going to be accomplished no matter what I said on the sideline, right? That is humbling. It should bring us back to bending the knee before the mighty hand and presence of God. Let's read these first seven verses. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. It is so key. It is absolutely essential as a part of this pleading to us to remember humility. So let's read those verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, he, he addresses right away, after that I played you, he addresses the elders of the church. So what we're not going to do this morning is get into elder rule and talking about the minutiae or the details of how elders uh, should lead in, you know, in a specific place in the church. That's not the point of the service this morning. We'll talk a little bit about elders uh, what it means to be an elder during our meeting tonight, because that's an important part of our annual meeting and affirming and reaffirming elders. So I'm not just pushing that aside. I invite you, that's one more reason, to set aside six o'clock. The Vikings will have won by then, okay? Uh, we all know that, right? Trusting that, okay? So it's the game will already be decided, and six o'clock, you can zoom in, and we'll talk a little bit about eldership and City on the Hill Church. But two initial observations that are critical here. Number one, elders were already in place when he wrote. They were already there. Why else would he say that? Elders. He's addressing elders specifically, okay? So elders weren't anything new to the leadership structure. In fact, you go back to the original testament in the books like Numbers and Leviticus, and you hear examples of how elders were to be set aside or, or identified within the Israelite community in order to lead. So that was already a part of how a Jewish thought was formed. And so it was very natural then in the earliest of the church with the apostles still around, apostles meaning those disciples who knew Jesus and interacted with Jesus personally. Those were the apostles. 
And they were early on, at, at, the, at the very beginning of each individual church, identifying leaders and elders for the church. So Peter is just responding to a long line of this is how we do things because that was God's plan from the very beginning. So remember that. It's not just uh, people trying to do what people do and be in charge of other people. This is really God's plan. It's got his stamp on how the church should work. So that's why he's addressing they were already even, even, remember these are groups of people, Christians exiled away from Rome uh, as they moved into this new reality that they never asked for in Galatia, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, in those places where those churches were meeting. Elders probably were there before they even got there, back in Rome or wherever they came from. They came with their church. So that was just a part of what they did. And number two, Peter describes himself as a, verse one, fellow elder. Yes, a witness of the sufferings as, uh, of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory is going to be revealed. And then he goes on to talk about what all of us elders should do, okay? So uh, some scholars uh, and some critical uh, scholars say, well, this can't be a book written by Peter himself, because certainly Peter would go on about stories of Jesus and his interactions with Jesus. And you might kind of expect that, right? He was an eyewitness. He heard the things Jesus said. He was there. So why wouldn't he talk about that? This is why he doesn't talk about that. He could have done that. The, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're, they, they either have been written or they are currently being written and being spread around the known world to all these churches. That wasn't Peter's role to tell that story again, he understood his role as being a shepherd. What did Jesus do? If you look back to John chapter 21, after Peter failed Jesus and Jesus reinstates Peter as an apostle, as, an, as a leader in this early church thing that no one ever heard of, Jesus tells Peter to take care of the sheep, to be a shepherd. So that is exactly the place that Peter is coming from as he addresses these people. I'm one of you guys. And it takes a humble guy or a guy who is being humbled to be able to say that, especially one who could assert his authority. I've been with Jesus. Here are the stories to prove it, right? He could be playing that card, a power card or a control card, but he's not. He is following through on what Jesus told him to do. Take care of my sheep. Be a shepherd, all right? That's where I'm at, Peter says. And I'm like you guys. That's humble. That's humility in action. And it's following through on what Jesus told him to do. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. And then Peter goes on to clarify, for these elders, we don't know how established they are. We don't know what the temptations are. We don't know the difficulties exactly they're facing, but Peter does go on to teach them a little bit. Specifically, there must have been issues that they were uh, confronted with that are very similar to people today in places of leadership in the church. So let's look at those real quick. Some enemies of what I call humble leadership the things that wage war against being a shepherd in the tradition of Peter. 
What are the things that he addresses? First, heartless service. Okay? Don't be like those who lead under obligation or compulsion. They're forced to, or I feel like I have to because nobody else is doing it, or because it's my turn to do it, or I'm on the ballot to do it. So I guess I have to just put up with it and do it. That is sometimes, you know, maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. Sometimes that happens in the church. Uh, In the past, even today, that's not a way and that's not an attitude that you would ever want to approach leadership with. That's why I call it heartless. Out of compulsion or obligation, but the heart is not involved. Number two, he speaks of an enemy called manipulative, I'm calling it manipulative gain. He speaks of things that are shameful. Okay, so it, it could be money involved. That happened then, still happens today. I get paid, I could be doing my job just for the money, right? Peter and the elders he's talking to they could be drawn into that place. And if I lead in a certain way, or if I give the people what they want, then maybe I'll get something more in return, which could be money, but it's not necessarily limited to money. Shameful gain could include any way a leader might be tempted to use his position to get rather than give. Okay? And that is a wide variety of options when you start considering that. And that could and would be called shameful, a way to manipulate people and the situation you're in. In Peter's day, it, you know, just think about it. Everything was uh, uh, tenuous. Their new existence in a foreign place surrounded by foreign people. You could find a way to manipulate your position of power in that situation, could you not? If people are scared or worried or frustrated with that, Same thing today. Uh, A leader could find a way to manipulate their circumstances for personal gain. Number three, unchecked power. Peter says an elder isn't to be domineering in leadership, but what? Instead of that, to lead by an example given. I read somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, but uh, the comparison was made between a cattle driver and a shepherd. I don't know if we have anybody here who's driven cattle. I haven't. The closest I get in my past is driving pigs, which you don't really typically do. Uh, so I don't, I don't know firsthand driving cattle, but the picture makes sense. And if you've ever seen the movies like Cattle Drivers, right? If you are on horseback and you want your cows to go somewhere, then what do you do? You're behind them or maybe beside them, but you're pushing them forward. You're driving them to whatever, your de- whatever the destination is meant to be. How does a shepherd look different? A shepherd doesn't drive. A shepherd comes alongside or is even in the front of those he would lead. I think there's a good distinction that can be made there. Leaders in the church, you're not cattle drivers. You're not domineering. You're not pushing people. You're leading by example, out of humility, coming alongside, starting to stink like the sheep. You're not distanced from them, but you're in there with them. That's what Peter's telling us. So that to be a shepherd is to be a guide, a loving guide, a humble guide, showing the way from, from 
from the front. This is the way that we go. And when you're doing that, power is checked. One more, pride. Uh, Peter tells us that God opposes prideful people. He's quoting from uh, Proverbs chapter 3. And this applies to elders and lay people alike. So here he's broadening the broadening the, the scope of uh, what he's addre- or who he's addressing here. It's not just elders, but uh, everyone. So in fact, pride, if it runs out of control, not just with the leadership, but with the church in general, pride ensures a graceless church existence for everyone. I mean, think about that. If pride is what matters, uh, and, and people are given into or given over to power and control, humility goes out the window. And Peter's telling us, along with that, the grace of God. And that, brothers and sisters, would be a frightening place to be if the church loses out on or doesn't even realize that the grace of God is no longer a functional, critical part of how we live of how we interact, of how we respond to God. If all there is left is pride, then the church is already dead. So pride is a killer, especially in leadership, but also to the entire church. It's either Jesus or pride leading any church. We hope and we pray it's Jesus here at City on a Hill. So in verse 5, He's speaking, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. He's not talking about, I don't believe he's talking about just a certain group of people. He's talking to everybody else in the church at this point. And what does he say? All of you, he says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now, I think I know what Peter was talking about there. Back in John chapter 13, we have the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Do you remember that? Does that ring a bell? Jesus took off his, his outer robe and took on a towel, put on a towel around himself so he could kneel down and go to each disciple one at a time and wash and dry their feet. Even Judas, the betrayer, all of them he went around to wash their feet. The same word, the same idea is found here in 1 Peter when he says, clothe yourselves, just as Jesus put on that robe of a servant, I believe Peter is remembering what happened in that moment as Jesus took on that towel to to kneel and wash. Jesus is saying, you do the same thing. Do it. Take on that towel and begin washing each other's feet. Now, it doesn't get more humble than that. It truly, really doesn't. And even Jesus said, John 3, he's given us example. As I've done, you should do. Peter is just following in that line of humble teaching and uh, giving that humble example. Now, one more thing about humility here. In verses 6 through 7, we have what doesn't seem like it fits together, but I'll give you the way that I think it does. So let me read it again. Humble yourselves, verse 6, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, how do those two verses fit together? What's going on there? We can't, 
If we had Peter right here, we could ask him, but we don't have him here. Uh, but one of the commentators I read this past week, I can't remember which one he was, I should have made the note, uh, brought up an idea that I found fascinating. So I want to present it to you in putting these two verses together to see if maybe, I guess I'd suggest that maybe we have an answer to why he goes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, the proper time he may exalt you, and then to go into talking about casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So here's what I think is going on with that. Peter is speaking from personal experience. Peter knows anxiety, which is just a beautiful, if, if this is where it's going, it's a beautiful flow to this passage. Of all these things, leaders, and then church, you should avoid, and, and remembering where you are in relationship to God, oh, and something comes to mind. I know what it's like to be under the hand of God and to feel anxiety in the response to it. What happened? Matthew chapter 26 tells us what happened when Jesus was being tried, the kangaroo court, and they were mocking him and the religious rulers of the day and spitting on him. And Matthew, other gospel writers, tell us that Peter wasn't in there in the trial but he was at what he thought was a safe distance watching across the courtyard. Do you know this? And three different people came up to him. I know you. You you were with him. I, I remember. I saw your face. And what did Peter do? He denied every time. And this is after, I believe it's in the same chapter of Matthew 26. Uh, earlier in the chapter, we have the account where Peter says, even if even if everyone denies you, I won't, right? Remember that? Even if I must die with you, I won't deny you. And then Jesus says, before that rooster crows three times, you're gonna deny me? You're gonna deny me three times before that rooster crows? Remember that? Jesus told him what's gonna happen, and it, but in that moment, he caves under the pressure, and he says, no, I didn't, I didn't know him. That third time, the rooster crows, and we have every reason to believe that across the courtyard, he made eye contact with Jesus. And the gospel writers tell, tell us that he went away weeping bitterly. It sunk in. I said I'd die before I'd deny him, and look what I did. Do you suppose that he might replay that moment in his life, in his memory, day after day. Do you think that's, I'm sure it happened. I mean, who blew it bigger than me? Peter would tell himself over and over again. I had it, I had the chance and I blew it. I denied Jesus before the world. Every day, Satan brings that back up. The devil points that out. Every time he's in a place of leadership, every time he addresses the church, every time he has an interaction, oh, but I blew it. I'm not cut for this. I can't, do, I can't speak for God. Are you kidding me? I'm the one that denied him. I can't do this. I'm garbage. I should just go home, go back to fishing. I can't do this. Do you suppose he knew anxiety as a Christian? You better believe he did. And what is his 
response. At the proper time, God's going to do something different. And that involves exaltation after all this humbling. And remember what I remember. Every day that I had that anxiety, every day that I remember I blew it, every day where I'm tempted to throw it in because I'm not good enough, the memory of my failure comes screaming back in my face. I cast it on Jesus. That's my only hope. The only way I can stand before you as a leader of the church, as a shepherd, the way Jesus reinstated me, every time I'm tempted to quit, it can't be me, I throw it back on Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful reminder right now in this passage? In the midst of, I, I quit, but Jesus is enough. He's there with me. He's the one that reinstated me. I can stand in him forgiven. I can stand in him with purpose and meaning. He can use even me. And the great denier, if he can use me, he can use you too. Don't get to that point where anxiety, for what, wherever that anxiety comes from, wherever it is in your life, where it threatens to shut you down, memories of the past, uh, issues that you face, remember in Christ he's enough and he says, throw it back on me. I can handle it. I died for you and I live in you. Throw it on me. Just keep it coming. Is he that gracious? Is he that powerful? We are going to go into that right now. Be watchful, he says. Now, I spent most of the time <laughs> on that first one, but man, it's important. I hope you're with me so far. So let's cruise on. Our next chapter involves not only humility, but also being watchful. Let's read those two, two verses. Be sober-minded, be watchful, he says. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Remember this, that the devil doesn't always roar. Now, in this context, what Peter's talking about, they're experiencing a roar uh, of the testing of the difficulties that they face because of the exile and everything else we talked about. In that sense, the devil is roaring against them. But other times, whether it's ancient or right now, other times, the devil just hangs out quietly waiting to pounce, which is kind of fills out the whole, you know, lion metaphor thing, okay? He does both. So regardless of whether he's roaring or whether he's hanging out, each day we are in the jungle, so to speak, and are vulnerable to his attack. If we've responded in any way to Christ, if, if, if the Great Commission means anything, to you as a believer, to go or as you're going, making disciples, sharing uh, his, uh, his love or his truth. If you've ever done that, then you are out there and you are vulnerable to attack. So if you are vulnerable like me, let's not get eaten up and taken out. So how do we do that? How to not become lunch, okay? We're gonna, we're gonna rip through this quickly, but that's where Peter goes and that's where we need to go as well, all right? Don't let your thinking become dull, he says. 
sober-minded. It's not the first time he's talked like this, okay? Uh, be sober-minded and being watchful. Uh, he, back in chapter 1, brings up this idea uh, to prepare your minds for action. Chapter 1, verse 13. So he's big on the way that we think. And the way that we think had better be sharp. And another way to say it is it better be wise. It's not just knowing stuff. It's knowing what to do with the stuff that we're presented with. Uh, a guy that I read every once in a while, Tim Chalice, uh, he wrote an article called 10 Ways to Resist the Devil. Uh, I would recommend it. If you just Google 10 Ways to Resist the Devil, he'll come up. Uh, and here's one of the points he makes. He says, labor... I, I, I love how he says it. It fits perfectly with what Peter's talking about. Labor for wisdom. There is a great difference between knowledge and wisdom, between accumulating facts and applying Scripture to those facts so they become wisdom. It is not the Christian with the most knowledge, but the Christian with the most wisdom who is equipped to battle Satan's temptations. What do we do with all this preaching stuff? What do we do with the devotionals? What do we do uh, throughout the week when you pull out the Bible? It's not meant to just fill your head with more knowledge. What are we doing with it? Followers, believers. That's where the mind begins to be focused and to be sharpened. If we're not, if we're not responding to those situations where the devil's about to roar, he's sneaking around wisely, then we come, become dull to his existence and what he could do to us, and how he could take us out. And then we just, usually it's subtly, step by step, get into this mode where it just doesn't matter. And all these other things take priority or more important. It takes intentionality and returning to what do we do with his word, with his truth. So, don't let your thinking become dull. Keep those eyes wide open. Maybe then, with your eyes wide open, you can see something wrestling in the grass. I don't know if you watch National Geographic or Nature. I don't know if Nature is another channel or it's a show. I don't remember. Uh, it's so much different than going to the zoo. The zoo has its place, but if you're like me, every time you go to the zoo, the animal's hidden somewhere. Like, oh, that's great. We supported the zoo, but we never saw anything. Okay? Have you been there? All right? So that's why these other shows are so great, because they bring you inches, you know, between you and this animal about to eat some, you know, gazelle somewhere, Right? You see in the grass, you know, to see the camouflage of the lion or the leopard or the cougar or whatever it is that's about to pounce and tear something into pieces. And even though we don't like blood and gore, well, we kind of do because you kind of watch to see, does he get the animal or not, right? But anyway, you, they bring you in, you see the grass, and all of a sudden in there, you see his face. If your eyes aren't, I mean, really open, not just not sleeping, <laughs> but tuned into what may be in the grass. If your eyes are that kind of open, then you can hope to see what is just beyond the front. That's what we've got to do as believers. Our eyes have to be sharp and clear and watchful. This is also intentionality. We cannot just bumble through lives as believers thinking we've got our fire insurance and that's enough. To resist this devil... We've got to keep our eyes open and finally stand strong in the gospel. He says, sober-minded, be watchful. He is prowling around. We've got to resist him firm in your faith. 
none of us have what it takes to beat a hungry lion. If we're going to stick with the metaphor, okay? I mean, imagine you out in the Serengeti, or wherever it is, and you, we cannot run like that gazelle. If that lion comes out, we're done. We're lunch, right? I mean, that's all there is to it. Unless you've got a, some massive gun with you, then you're done. None of us spiritually, we've got to be real here. We, if we are caught unaware, we're not watching, we're not being wise, we're done. We are torn up and our heart and guts are dinner time. It is that critical that we stand firm in Christ. Jesus has the only victory that counts in that situation, and he gives it to us freely. Believers, we got to remember and return to our faith. We do not trust in something that is fragile. We trust in Jesus, who has gone through the temptation in every way, yet remain pure to be the sacrifice for us. We've got to be learning each day what it means to stand in Jesus and know that he's enough even when we blow it. Because our relationship with him does not go away. It's not finished. It's not over. Just like what I think Peter was going through. You return to Jesus standing firm in the gospel. That is, that is our only hope, what Jesus has done especially when we consider how weak we truly are. So, what does that mean for us? Uh, let's see here. Uh, we're, oh yeah, John 4. 1 John, let me read this real quickly. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, when I speak of standing firm in the faith, uh, John tells us uh, perfectly what that is about. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, okay, and the devil. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What it is, is a gift. The faith that we have is purely a gift. It is of no accomplishment that we could ever gain. So the victory is also ours by our faith that God has given us. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Finally, be humble, be watchful, and be mindful. And after you have suffered, starting at verse 10, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. God is, just dwell on this as we finish. God is a God of all grace, not partial grace, okay? It, not just a little bit to get you by in a moment where you're feeling stronger than usual. He is the God of all grace, and we need every part of all of his grace. We're not going to get it from anywhere else. Look at what Peter's already talked about. You're not going to get grace from yourself. The anxiety we feel, maybe constantly over our own failures, we don't cut ourselves grace naturally, do we? So don't look inwardly without Christ to, to find what you're, you're, you're just going to fail on. Or at least 
find that it's not lasting. You are not capable to extend to yourself enough grace. Does that make sense? And certainly don't look to the devil because he wants to eat you. He is not going to extend any grace to you. So where do we go? Think about this. Especially when failure is there in your life. Especially when there's anxiety. Especially when there's trouble. Go to Jesus because he's got all grace. It covers everything that we need every moment. What does his grace do in us? This beautiful passage here tells us exactly. All these verses that you see on the screen, they're all indicative. They, uh, they all indicate what it is that the grace of Christ does in us. So let's dwell on what these words mean. His grace restores us. Same word is used in different places in the New Testament to describe how we are fully trained, how we are prepared, how we are mended, how we're put back together again. All the things that destroy us or tear us down. Jesus, his grace, puts us back together and then builds us up and prepares us for whatever it is that is before us. Only Jesus and his grace can restore us. What else does it do? It confirms in a strong way. Same word is used in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Jesus, on his final trip onto Jerusalem, Luke tells us that Jesus sets his face on Jerusalem, on the, the mission that must be finished there. Meaning this, he is not, he is not going to look to the side and he is not going to look backward. That is not where he's going. The mission to accomplish that, to give his life on the cross is before us and nothing else is going to detract him. That's setting your face. Jesus did it. And Peter is using that idea to say, listen, believer, he confirms you. He has set you on a journey. The past is the past. Leave it there. And nothing else around you matters. All the distractions, the things that war against us, yeah, those are real, but Jesus has put you on a path that's going to happen. It's going to happen because it happened for him. There's, there's, there's no way it's going to be sidelined. We can trust him in that. He has got a purpose for you that will find its ultimate destination. Isn't that awesome? Nothing's going to stop it. Jesus lives. And because he lives, I will live in that way. What else does he say? He strengthens us. The grace of God strengthens us. This word is only used here in the New Testament. Okay, We can't compare it to other places in the Bible. But the word form as a noun appears in the book of Job. And here's why I think this is significant. And I think we can kind of peer into Peter's brain a little bit here. Okay, uh, It exists in Job when Job speaks, speaks of the strength of a lion. Now look at what Peter says. He says the devil prowls around what? What does he say? Like a lion. The teeth are gone. Okay? He's already lost. The devil wants you to think he has the ultimate power and he does not. Unless you give it to him, he is a loser. He's lost because of the cross and he's going to continue to lose. So even though he prowls like a lion, Jesus is the lion. His 
strength, the strength of the lion. Revelation, what does he call Jesus? The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one, Revelation chapter five, who conquers. He looks like a bloody lamb because he was sacrificed, but at the same time, he is the lion that won. He's the real lion, and his strength, believer, is your strength, is my strength. That's what I've got to remember as I struggle. In the midst of struggling, the lion of the tribe of Judah lives in me. What am I messing around with with these stupid other distractions? And why do I give in to believing false things? I've got to remember that the lion is in charge. Finally, he establishes. That word is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe being grounded in your faith and also being stable in your faith. Not shaken, uh, not messed with, nothing, no earthquake is going to mess your, mess up with your, your spiritual faith and where you are in Jesus. You, believer, whether you remember it or not, are established on a firm foundation. Nothing can shift so drastically that your hope, rock solid hope, not, oh, I hope he likes me today, your rock solid hope in Christ, nothing can touch it. You are that established in Jesus Christ. So that's the way Paul prays for believers. And in his book, to uh, the, the Ephesians chapter three, and that's what we've got to remember. We are his established in him. So here's where we end. Peter, and, and we end the same place that we started in the book of 1 Peter. In chapter one, what does Peter emphasize as he addresses the believers? He talks about the grace of God in the power of God. That's how he ends this book. How do we get through the fire? It's only by the grace of God, through the power of God. To him be the dominion. In other words, power. The power that saves us, the power that sets us free, the power that sets us on solid ground, the power that reveals himself in greater and more wonderful ways, the power that restores and mends, the power that confirms who we are as a believer and no other lie is gonna be sufficient. We're not gonna give in to those anymore. That power is solidified in the grace of God. What do we sing about already this morning? Grace, grace, God's grace. Believer, have you forgotten about all grace that God gives? Remind yourself today, this week, the only way you move forward is by the grace of God. And he and his power is sufficient for all of these issues and trials and struggles and problems that we have. To him be the power forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this time and where we're at and where we stand and where our church is and the struggles that are before us that are, that are screaming in our faces right now, the restrictions and the difficulties, the, the problems that are real, Jesus, remind us of who we belong to. Enable us, Lord, to stand again firm, wisely in what it is that you provided, responding to it. Keep 
Lord, our eyes open. And this week, when the devil seeks to make us lunch, his lunch, make us wise to the way that he is tempting, the way that he wants to jump on us, restore us and in us a wise response to what it is that he's doing. Oh, Jesus, we need to stand firm in what you provide in us and not trust in anything else or any other distraction. So Lord Jesus, live in us new and fresh and return us to that stable ground where the ground has shifted, where the ground has been so unpredictable this year. Return us to what it means to stand in you and to face this week and whatever is coming by faith. The faith that you've given, the faith that changes everything. Lord Jesus, we extend heartfelt thanks and gratitude to your throne. You are worthy as we sing and as we worship. Finishing this morning, be honored as we put our eyes again only on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're starting our new Advent series. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Crossroads, Ruth, Faithworks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.